But if you catch uh, my gig regularly, you know that is my attempt and endeavor to bring you all the art and culture that's happening uh, around the city and the country. Pablo Bartholomew, a very celebrated photographer, is a Padma awardee and somebody who's won the World Press Photo Award. He has this excellent photographic exhibition called The Nagas. And it started on the 25th of Feb, that's on Friday last, and it goes on all the way up to the 24th of March. So you have a month to go and uh, take a look. It's the Nine Fish Art Gallery, which is the new Great Eastern Mills, uh, Ambedkar Road, inside the Salset 27 compound, Baikala East. But if you could just do a Google map on Nine Fish Art Gallery, it'll come up. And uh, I insist that you must go because I've seen uh, some of the prints and they're absolutely spectacular. Hi, how are you doing? I mean, these are very dystopian times that we live in. So the first question, one must ask is i hope the family and you are safe and healthy and you've got your vaccines and you're in line for your booster well i've already had my booster and uh yes i mean uh mercifully i haven't contracted covid uh at all so though i've been out and about but you know with uh, all of this one takes the general precaution but even with the precaution it's touch wood excellent pablo the nagas is uh is your visual records of the Naga people. I believe uh, this is a fascination, you know, and a, a tribe of great curiosity, intrigue and fascination for you from a very early age. And it has something to do with your father, who I believe was also, apart from being an academician, a photographer. So I'd like you to talk about, uh, you know, your association with the Nagas. You're correct. I mean, it has been a childhood fascination. And that's because of the stories that I heard when my father uh, about his departure as a refugee in the Second World War from Burma and coming to India. So, you know, you hear stories and they, they get kind of embedded in you. And one of the stories is about the Naga tribes and the hospitality and the friendship and the warmth that they receive. And I think when you're a refugee and you're making a march for 30 days, somewhere in between when you get food and shelter, there is a gratefulness that uh, comes about. But, you know, growing up, as I got to know more about the Nagas, I could never wrap my head around the idea that, that uh, here were these ferocious tribes that had barbaric practices. Why would they let easy game passing through their territory and not just let them have safe passage, but also, um, you know, provide them food and shelter. In fact, in the exhibition, I have a video, a short interview, which I've edited about my aunt, my Burmese uh, Scottish aunt, who also made this journey. And uh, she sort of recounts her walk through the Naga areas and all the horrors that they saw. So, you know, it's a, it's a very, uh, how would you say, it's a very uh, real story. I mean, for example, if I was to contemporize it, the film actress Helen is also of Burmese origin, and she also made this walk. So there are many people that made this walk, and it's a forgotten chapter of history, but it's something that propelled me to go to see who these people were. And once I started to enter into the Naga people, you know, there was no going back. I was hooked because the Nagas are over 30 tribes. So this umbrella name for most people, you know, think, oh, it's one tribe, but there are 
30 tribes over Arunachal Pradesh, Assam, Nagaland, and Manipur. Of course, the principal Nagas are in Nagaland, but they are scattered all over and into the Burma Naga area. It's very wonderfully described. Now, these are people who obviously have mastery over wood carving, metalwork, and you know, even in their headgear, in what they wear, I find a lot of artistic representation. The necklaces, the body tattoos, the colors, the designs. And correct me if I'm wrong, Pablo, this is not pure ornamentation. This is not purely them doing this for decorative reasons. But these are all almost like codes embedded in their daily lives, what they wear and what it represents. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is the whole thing. And I sort of often tease my friends who are in fashion and say, hey, you know, there's somebody somewhere that suddenly says pink is the color of the year. Um, and then they jump to another color and another color over different years. But here you have, and it's universal amongst most of the tribe, the clothing that they wear is an expression of themselves. So uh, the graphical representation, for example, is uh, what each tribe has as its, you know, you could say a flag that they wear. So people know who they are amongst themselves, of course. The headgear, the feathers, the ornamentation, the tattoos all come about as rites of passage. So when you grow up and reach a certain age, you get a certain tattoo. When you, as a warrior, you uh, go into the jungle, you kill a tiger, um, you get certain kinds of tattoos. And of course, in their practice of headhunting, when you took a head, then you again were able to wear certain kinds of tattoos and also wear certain kinds of jewelry, which had heads actually as necklaces. So, you know, there's so much visual representation which had meaning. Uh, so it's, it's on one level, yes, as I always say, it's great fashion. Uh, you know, it's visual beauty personified. But on another level, it's riding on ritualistic meaning, myths and legends that they believe in. And that's what, you know, at the end of the day, drives uh, uh, and defines the people. Pablo, how much have they changed, these tribes? I've also seen some pictures in your collection, or a particular picture, correction, where, you know, the young girls were very hip, very stylish, uh, almost Western attire as opposed to these incredibly vivid images of people in their traditional headgear and, and clothes. So obviously, there is the rapid influence of the West. The Northeast itself is a very fashion-conscious side of the country. Uh, you know, they love their rock and roll, they love their music, and I'm sure all of that is also infiltrated into, into these tribes and the younger generation. Yes, of course. You know, 98% of the Nagas are Christians now. 150 years ago, 1872 is probably the first date the conversion started. They embraced American Baptist Christianity. So there has been a, a very strong Christian element. The Baptists gave them in different tribes at different periods their written word in the sense that 
um, or like lots of tribes, it's an oral tradition. But the Baptists were able to give them phonetically the Roman character. So English was written phonetically and they were able to then start to write. So there has been that element and with that element, of course, you know, they've looked to the West and they are Westernized. And as you rightly say, they are very, very beautifully dressed, even in modern nuances. The girls, the boys, they dress very smartly and they carry themselves very well. Okay, so I'm going to go through uh, three photographs in particular that interest me and maybe you can we can talk a little bit about it there's a young sema girl and she's in a, a beaded overskirt and i believe that what they wear also indicates their economic privilege <laughs> so i'd like to talk a little bit about that please okay that picture is has been photographed at a youth festival of the sema people and the girl is wearing a very rare skirt. I guess it's a family heirloom which has been passed down. And it's only the, the, the chief's daughter that could wear that particular skirt or the wife or the female members. So it's not, again, um, uh, a skirt that anybody could wear. So thereby... It makes it, you know, you could say that people with privilege in that tribe had access to that kind of clothing. Though it's in a modern setting, the girl is young, you know, and every day she would be wearing jeans and a t-shirt, makeup, um, you know, wear her hair in a very modern uh, way. But here she's dressed in this traditional attire. And it's quite striking, including her pose, which is very, it's like a model without being a model. So, you know, it's a natural poise. And that's where many of these people, they are, I've made them stand or pose for me as it was a portrait or a fashion shoot. And they just, you know, pose or stand very naturally. Excellent. There's another one which has these spectacular headdresses. And apart from headdresses, there are also jaw pieces. And I believe this uh, is the Tankul tribe. And uh, this tribe is found both in India as well as uh, Burma, which is now Myanmar. Yeah, uh, this part of the Tankul tribe, these few villages are called the Somra Nagas. Of course, they are, that's a kind of subset of the Tankul people. And uh, they are found in a couple of villages in this side of India and on the Burma side. They're there. It's kind of strange. They call, it's called a lion headdress, as you say, that jaw piece. But there are no lions in um, the Naga hills. I mean, there were hundreds of tigers which were all killed and there are still maybe um, a, a, on the Burma Naga side a few tigers that still roam. But the Nagas being ferocious hunters, they've hunted everything. I mean, every child has a catapult in its hand and it's rare sometimes to see even a crow uh, around or a sparrow because, you know, they've all been killed. But uh, to find this... Uh, headgear, I had to go in 
in my Jeep into a very remote village. And coming back, I burnt my clutch and had to put the Jeep onto a a log uh, logging truck, uh, which brought it up to the main road. And then as I uh, was, um, I had to go back to Imphal to find the border roads who could help me to transport it back. So, you know, everything is not easy. There are all sorts of uh, elements that hinder, you know, it's not like a walk in the park that, you know, you're going in to get these photos. It can have, uh, it's adventure, of course, but it can be very slow and you can encounter all sorts of problems. Now, I believe the show, which is currently showing at the Nine Fish, also is complemented by original pieces of Naga furniture and some artifacts. You want to just talk us through that apart from the photographs? Yeah, of course. Well, the reason for doing the show at the Great Eastern Space and at Nine Fish was that, you know, I've known them now for a couple of years. And then when both of the the, the director of Nine Fish, Dormani, and the owner of Great Eastern, Dr. Anurag Kanoria, were over and we were having a drink and Anurag said, you know, I have some Naga objects and my uh, ears pricked up and I said, really? And how much? And can I see them? And that's what led to the show because I've always been in conversation with Naga objects. In the year 2000 in Paris, I did a show at the Musée de l'Homme, which is the Museum of Mankind. They brought out their collection in New York with the Rubin Museum, which is actually a Himalayan art museum. And they had some Naga uh, objects. And there also I sort of dialogued with their collection. So. Uh, one of the reasons why it's a nine fish and in Bombay or Mumbai, it's because of these objects and there are beds, physical statues, posts, uh, little objects, some jewelry. So there's a whole plethora of uh, things for people to see. And I think it just makes it a much richer experience when you see um, you know, in real life, what their art uh, and culture is. Well, I want to talk about uh, another picture. It's actually a completely dark background. And uh, these two resplendent ladies are in the foreground. One of them standing and holding a basket, the other one sitting, and they're in traditional uh, gear or outfits. Uh, what do you call this particular picture? What tribe is this? Uh, would you take me through this photograph, please? Yeah, this is the Chakasang tribe. Uh, the, the Chakasang are actually three tribes, were, but there's a kind of generic uh, name given as Chakasang, Chakra, KV, and Sangtam make up uh, the Chakasang people. And in this photo, there are these two Chakasang women with a basket, which is called a thang. And this is a, a multi-purpose basket, which is used to go to the jungle, to bring back firewood, to collect vegetables. When they, when they reap their harvest, they bring back their produce in it. And they're quite beautiful and spectacular. And in fact, in the exhibition, there are a whole plethora of baskets uh, on view. 
and um, uh, they, they're quite fine keen work and they're sturdy as hell so they really like the rural backpack um, rucksack you know that that existed at that time and still d- do but sometimes you don't find the workmanship as fine as it used to be like everything's deteriorated and everybody's in a hurry and that sort of um, you know sort of defines how times have changed for those of you who have joined us late, Pablo Bartholomew, the photographer, he's won three World Press Photo Awards. He's received the Padma Shri and the, the Order of Arts and Letters. Uh, we're talking about his exhibition, which is the Nagas, and this is at the Nine Fish Art Gallery in Baikula. One of the World Press Photo Awards was given uh, for an iconic picture that you took in Bhopal. Around about the time the Bhopal gas tragedy happened, the Union Carbide tragedy, most people who are watching or listening uh, wouldn't have even been born at that point in time, but it was one of the saddest days or phase of India's history. And this is of a child who is half buried and who is, who's died and who's been gassed because of this gas leakage. If you could take us through how that picture happened and, uh, you know, while you were in Bhopal. Well, that's a completely long and uh, big story. For those really interested, if you search on YouTube, uh, I did uh, a 45-minute presentation for the Hindu Lit for Life. I think it was a couple of, uh, several years ago. So, you can find that whole recount of uh, how I made the image. But the short version is that when I arrived into Bhopal, we were um, a lot between the hospitals and the cremation and the burial grounds. And this child, I can't say if it's a male or a female child, but it is uh, a child that was being buried. And in Hindu tradition also, Children under a certain age are buried or floated in water. So, though this was a Muslim child and the family was burying it and uh, came across it. And as I started to photograph it from a distance and coming in closer and closer and closer, this was probably the closest where it's just the grave and half the body of the child. Um, It's the eyes which are kind of smoky and light. It has that sort of surreal look, and I'm I'm very grateful the, to the World Press that they saw this uh, as an icon of this tragedy, and it has remained as uh, this iconic photo. And I hope that it is an image that your listeners and your the generation of your listeners will look at this photo to be reminded that giant corporations greed for profit and how our planet is going. There are many more disasters as we are already seeing nature take its, uh, uh, you know, revenge. And where we all will be in a few decades from now, God only knows. Poignantly put, uh, but I can't argue with you on that at all. Uh, you're no stranger to conflict zones. You've been uh, at the Ranjan Bhumi site. You've been uh, where the riots were, the, the Sikh riots of 84. You were around when Mrs. Indira Gandhi was assassinated. Uh, the Bhopal gas tragedy we've just talked about. How was it living life on the edge? And what is it that, that prompted you to do so? I mean, there are photographers of all kinds. You could have continued just yeah, well, doing, doing you know, the Naga uh, stuff. 
as opposed the naga stuff as opposed to the conflict stuff i mean if, i can't put it in any more plain well, words uh sorry to interrupt uh, have interrupted you but uh, you know it's a cycle in the sense that i started out uh, i left delhi my high school came to bombay i started working in the bombay film industry as a stills photographer which is really at the lowest end of the spectrum and then i danced a little bit with advertising and corporate work uh but i was kind of bored and also um, being a documentary photographer before i got into films and uh the advertising end of it uh, as my day job you know i wanted to be internationally published and that's what then took me to find a news agency which would represent me and i could work in the international arena and thereby find money and well fame as every young photographer would want it uh i was very lucky i started working in 1983 it was the sikh riots uh, sorry the the sikh movement which was just at that time a simple farmer protest pretty much in a certain way like we've had the farmer protest the beginnings of it but it went on for a year and the government had to of course back down but the simple farmer protest which then turned political and then there were upheavals and a call for a new nation all of that sort of stuff and then going into mr gandhi's assassination the sikh riots that followed the rise of rajiv gandhi then working with uh, the new prime minister uh, his demise mandal babri masjid so over the sort of 20 years that i went into news and then of course once the internet age came and the computers and uh, it all became about the indian business and it revolution so i was doing not so exciting work but much more boring stuff but it was all the who's who that you know out there now and you know successful or super successful so uh, i've had this trajectory but within the 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 you know this very intense work uh, of news and reportage that's when i would take time off when it was low periods to be able to uh you know work with my ideas the thoughts that i had about my father's journey the naga people it was you know that period of youth i had a jeep or a gypsy got into it and drove there are many times that i drove from delhi to nagaland took 4 days and i had kind of constructed it customized it with a generator lighting gear so a portable studio could be set up so you know it's all that whole way of unplugging yourself and uh, taking a break it was therapy photography has also been therapy for me and an escape to be able to do something very different that's why i never within my naga documentation actually address the polit- political side there it's the the seat of the oldest secessionist movement the cry for freedom uh, in india but nobody of course um, you know uh, a lot of people don't know about it it's very very exciting 
I'm just uh, curious to know how you're dealing with the current digital age. Do you ever go back into a dark room, the mystery and the mystique of the dark room? How long has it been since that happened? How much do you shoot in film as opposed to uh, just on a hard drive or a uh, or a chip? <laughs> yeah. Well, the sad thing is, yes, I uh, as technology takes over, you become a slave to it. So yes, I've adopted the digital. Though I have a very strong and firm background in the analog film, black and white film that I processed myself, printed myself. Color, Bicky was uh, you know less hands-on, and part of color was that as I started in '83 to to uh, shoot for my photo agency. we had to ship our film out which means we shot and we shipped on airlines air france to paris or to new york for time news week things like that and we never saw our images until i went back to new york in every year or every second year and wow. out to the edit so so that was one phase and then by uh, the the end of uh, the century the 1990s there was a transformation into digital and which i hated but we had to work that way so yes i'm very embedded in the digital however i still shoot film there have been projects i did of i i have a series that i still am working on the indian emigre and when i shot the uk part of it in leicester i shot a lot of it on film the advantage there is that you can always digitize it and you know still be in the digital realm and uh, in 97 when i left my photo agency because it got bought by a bigger fish and i didn't want to work with the big fish which is probably the biggest fish around i opened a small internet company where we made photo databases where you could be search uh, the whole process of searching pricing and um, you know paying and downloading So for some years I ran that then I got very bored with that whole digital world and if I needed to become a full IT kind of guy I would have to go on a completely other route so it was a decision that to stay with photography so basically whether analog digital still with photography that's my you know love that has remained however of course today photography for so many people means facebook instagram i have presence there but you know i don't think that i embrace it like many people have and the digital age what it's done is it's, it's let everybody become a photographer which is very democratic and wonderful and there's so much of image making that's going on but as i always compare it and say you know we all can write the written word in some form or the other but which one of us are really the true poets or the great literary writers which can string words and make magic out of it so it's in the same way you know everybody can press a button and something happens but how do you go further in stringing images putting things together and being able to actually um you know 
um, um, entice a viewer into another world. That's very nicely put. But uh, well, you said that film set photographers, still photographers, were lowest end of the food chain. But uh, a little birdie tells me that you were on the great Satyajit Ray's film set, Shatranj Ke Khiladi. Is that true? <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, I used film, uh, my stills uh, career as a stepping stone to also learn about cinematography. There was a point when I wanted to maybe consider film as a career, but I found more and more that working within groups is not my scene and I'm a guy who likes to be on my own. And that's where photography has always suited me because it's a solitude. Your quest is in solitude. It's not in a group. And that's what uh, even being on the set of uh, Chaturanj Ke Khilari taught me. I mean, that Ray, who is such a fantastic director and a renaissance man, that if you really wanted to be this amazing director, you need to be able to write, compose music, you know, visually illustrate, which all of these music he had. And uh, I felt rather inadequate, though the journey, I met some amazing people, not just in, in India, but also I shot some Hollywood films. I was on the set of Gandhi. And then I was on a, a Hollywood film that came to India and there was a whole rage in the 2000s, uh, late 90s, 2000s, when a lot of Western films came. And one of the most important people that I met was uh, Bergman's cameraman Sven Nyquist. I shot a, 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 a wow. short stint as a stills photographer on this Columbia production called Willie and Phil. And the director became very good friends with me and that led me to other things. So, you know, it's one thing leading to another and uh, I was always able to go back into any set that uh, Satyajit Ray was shooting. I was grateful that uh, he allowed access and uh, it was a great learning curve. Excellent. The Nagas is a select series of photographs from Pablo Bartholomew's monumental visual records of the Naga people. It's on till the 24th of March, 10.30 in the morning till 7.30 in the evening at the Nine Fish Art Gallery in Baikula. Please go and uh, take a look. This is fascinating stuff. I appreciate your time. Thanks very much and uh, hope to see you soon. Cheers. Thank you. I look forward to many people coming and experiencing the show.